Can anyone tell me, what did Jesus look like when he walked on the earth? How tall was he? How much did he weigh? Artists have attempted to paint his appearance. Have they ever gotten it right, do you think? Uh, We've seen white Jesus and black Jesus and California surfer Jesus and uh, Renaissance effeminate Jesus. He's out there. Uh, We don't see as often dark-skinned Jewish Jesus, though that's probably the most accurate. But uh, we tried to capture his appearance, and, and guess what? The Bible gives no indication what Jesus looked like, his outward appearance. And that, that is intentional, because what would humans probably do if we knew his height and weight and appearance? We would be focused on his height and weight and appearance. Now, Jesus is the focus of the Bible, but the Bible never focuses on his outward appearance. The Bible focuses on Jesus' inner character. And Jesus' inner character and the lives of his followers, the inner character of his people ever since has been turning the world upside down. We're beginning our uh, all-church fall series today. It's called Upside Down, Lessons for an Abundant Life. And we're going to be preaching through Matthew chapter 5. Over the next six weeks, that's the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And our small groups will focus on this, on these texts as well, and our youth ministry as well, and our children's ministries as well. Uh, We've done this more than 10 years now, Uh, the whole church doing the same thing in the fall. It's always a great season of unity and excitement and momentum, and that's what we're kicking off this morning. And in our study of Jesus' words this fall, what we're going to find is the inner character that we need to have as Jesus followers. What kind of people Christians ought to be and the outward steps that we can take to fulfill that very thing. How to live, how to live abundantly. And brothers and sisters, as we start this journey together this fall, I want to challenge you to have a full faith in the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives and in the church's life this fall. Amen? Because we are doing it for God's glory, we're following his word, and we're proclaiming Christ. And I want to encourage you to have every week to come with a sense of expectation. There's no reason not to. So as we begin, have that sense of expectation even right now this morning as we open God's word. Today we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. So if you want to open your Bibles, now would be a good time to do it. Matthew 5, or turn on your apps. The words will be on the screen. If you don't have your Bible, that's fine. Sermon notes in your bulletin always help you follow along as well. And if you pull those notes out or open them on your app, your Lake City app, you'll see that point number one is setting the story. And that's where we're going to begin right now. We're going to set the story. Let me establish some important facts about the setting of our journey this fall. First, the four Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are four records of the person and works of Jesus Christ from four different perspectives. So we get a full picture. Matthew wrote about the fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. That Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David. He is the man who is God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And chapters 4 through 7 in Matthew announce God's kingdom to the world. And it's an upside down kingdom. 
What does that mean? It means that there are no privileged members. The poor, the wealthy, the, the educated, the uneducated, the healthy, the unhealthy, the downtrodden and kings. Everybody is invited to this kingdom through repenting from sin and trusting, turning your life to the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ. Jesus is here to save sinners and to transform our hearts so that we can truly love God, so that we can truly love other people, including our enemies. And his lessons, as we will see in every week of the series, are upside down from the teachings of the world. But they always lead to an abundant life. Now, really studying the Sermon on the Mount can be disturbing. Because Jesus doesn't pull any punches. And he addresses things that convict us and challenge us. And you know that when we're following Jesus, we're never really comfortable because he's always pressing us outside of our comfort zone. It says, meet the power of my Holy Spirit there. But as we will see, it is always, always blessed. Abundantly. I'm going to show you a picture of where this took place, the Mount of the Beatitudes. Now, there's nothing magical about the location. It's beautiful, right? There's nothing magical or special about this location other than the fact that this was a real event. These were real events. And they have real meaning to our lives today. And so as we open our, our scripture to chapter 5, we're going to see and we're going to try to meet Jesus and the crowds and his disciples that were there that day and hear from the words of the master today as we open this text. So let's go ahead and look at how chapter 5 starts in the first two verses. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, well, what do we see already in, the, in these first two verses? We see a couple significant things. He went up on the mountain. This was a familiar way of Jesus to go up on the mountain. Sometimes crowds are following. He used that as an opportunity to go on the mountain and do teaching. Sometimes he went up on the mountain to get away from the crowds, to be isolated and pray to his father. This particular mountain climb was significant because he was about to challenge his followers and his onlookers with some high and noble and radical and countercultural ideals, heavenly ideals. And the people were stirred and drawn to him for even more. So there we are on the top of this mountain. Now it says he sat down. This was the normal posture for rabbis when teaching. And I thought about, well, should I preach sitting down today? Here's some stools up here. And then I thought, well, the pulpit doesn't lower, so I can't do that. Now, that was the common way of, of rabbis teaching then, and standing up to preach is the common way we do it now. So I'm just going to keep standing up. But there is Jesus. He sits, ready to teach the crowd, and then his closest disciples next to him. And he speaks in a commanding voice. Now, with the story set, we're going to learn now about starting the abundant life. And that's the second point on your notes, if you're tracking along. Starting the abundant life. Launching an abundant life. Because when Jesus is ready to speak, the first words that he utters, the first word in a commanding voice is, 
blessed. And we have to stop there. We can't go any further until we fully grasp and understand and connect with this word. Why? Because Jesus is going to use it nine times in this opening section. In fact, the entire message of the Sermon on the Mount hinges on this word, blessed. So, what is abundant life and how does the word blessed relate to it? First, abundant life is the way that Jesus described what the Christian life on earth should be. If we are really taking on his character and really truly believing in him and obeying him and following him in every part of our lives, it's exactly what will characterize our lives, abundant life. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. His words, his plan. I heard of a Chicago sewer worker who once described the meaningless of his life in a way that we can all too often relate. He said this, I dig the ditch to earn the money, to buy the food, to get the strength, to dig the ditch. Get up, get dressed, go to work, come home, eat dinner, watch TV, go to sleep, do it all over again. The cycle continues. But friends, life is meant to be more than a mindless, meaningless cycle. It's more than living for the weekends. It's more than satisfying ourselves. Jesus is in the business of giving abundant life. And so he begins his sermon on the mount with a word that we need to grasp. That word is blessed. Now, I'm going to put the Greek word on the screen. It's makarios. We don't need to study Greek. We don't need to be Greek scholars. But I want to focus on this word because it unlocks everything that the word, that the English word blessed, that hasn't even been used that long in translations, uh, misses. Let me just tell you that, the story of my own experience, my own life, uh, so you understand what I'm talking about. So I grew up in a conservative Baptist church in Warsaw, Indiana in the 70s and 80s. And because my dad was the pastor, I had to wear a tie every week to church. I didn't really like that too much. Uh, I carried my King James Bible with me every week. And, and I tell you, I was discipled well. And that's no problem. But I remember studying this passage. I remember memorizing the Beatitudes. And I remember, how did we say this? How did we pronounce this word then? Blessed, of course. Blessed. Okay. What does the word blessed mean to a child? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. So I'm memorizing this, and it means nothing to me. Blessed are this, blessed are that. And I don't want that because of the richness of this word. I don't want that for my own kids, and I don't want that for anybody else here, for this word to mean nothing to them. Let's look at what makarios really means. Here are several definitions because I want to make sure that not one person goes away today not grasping the full dynamic of Jesus' message that we're going to be in over the next six weeks. Makarios. A simple definition is a state of happiness pertaining to being happy. So Jesus is saying happy. But it's not just that simple. It's richer than that. Another definition is divine happiness that gives inner satisfaction to life, to be enriched by God and full of joy. Fully satisfied, deeply happy, filled with joy. One commentator wrote this. The Greeks had a word, eudaimonia, 
for human happiness. Jesus, however, used the strong word makarios. Greek philosopher Aristotle, back before the time of Christ, drew the distinction between these two words in that makarios was a quality of happiness reserved for the gods. Exactly. And Jesus both pictured this kind of happiness. Hebrews 2 said he was the happiest man ever walked the earth. He pictures this kind of happiness and he promises this kind of happiness. He wants to give you this, my friends. And that is something, I don't care who you are, everybody wants. Everybody wants happiness. Everybody wants to be fulfilled. And this is what Jesus offers. A lot more than blessed. Now, let's dig into Jesus' eight beatitudes. And the word beatitude itself literally means supreme blessedness. So we're talking at a high level here of happiness and supreme blessedness. These eight beatitudes represent the very character of God. God is revealing to us his value system, what's most important in the Beatitudes. His system is different from the world's, but it brings abundant life. So pay attention. Let's give ourselves to following them. And I have divided them into two categories this morning. The first four of the Beatitudes tell us how to live. How to live. And the second four tell us how to live abundantly. These, qual- these questions, how can I live and how can I live abundantly, these, these are embedded in the soul of every single human. How do I really truly live and find purpose for my life? And how do I live abundantly? Every soul of every person is asking these questions. So let's look at the first. How can I start to live? Now when we first examine the Beatitudes, I think I want to set something straight because I think The vast majority of people uh, see this wrong. We naturally think of these describing eight different classes of people. You got blessed are the the pure, the poor in spirit, the pure hearted over here. You got the peacemakers over here. Eight different categories of people. And that's not the way it is. These are one class of people. They are people who are getting into the kingdom of heaven. But the order of them is important. The first four tell us how to start to live how to become a Christian, how to begin the Christian life and start living now with this new life in Christ. I love working with young believers, new believers at at Lake City who have said, okay, I'm giving my life to Christ. Now what? How now shall I live? And that's what these first four talk about. So let's look at these first four and I've put the, the truth along with each of them called the B1 through B8. You'll see those on your notes. Let's look at that first beatitude of Jesus where he starts the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a startling and extraordinary statement to begin with. He's sitting down. He's on the mountain plateau. He's speaking to multitudes in a commanding voice. Right out of the gate, he opens his mouth with an unexpected trait of a kingdom person Humble, humility, that's what poor in spirit means. To spiritually live requires that we are poor in spirit. What does he mean? 
I like how one author puts it. Humility, humility is the first letter of the Christian alphabet. This is where it begins. When the Bible says that salvation is only by God's grace, not by our works, not by anything that we do on its own, but by God's grace alone, we have to acknowledge that we cannot earn our place in the kingdom, that we come before God as helpless and hopeless sinners. But by his grace, our salvation, our entrance into the kingdom, our spiritual life is a gift of God that he gives us. But we have to be poor in spirit, humble. So how can I start to live is our question. B1 gives the first answer. By repenting from sin and submitting to God. And now we become alive. Happy are the poor in spirit. That's how he starts. This is a call to repentance from sin and submitting to God. This is completely upside down from the humanism our day that wants to elevate ourselves above God. But this is what brings life. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have this heavenly bliss. All the riches of heaven are promised to those who are poor in spirit and come to God this way. Today, tomorrow, and for eternity. I know most of the people in this room have trusted Jesus as your Savior and been given this new life and have started to live, but there are some who haven't, I would guess. Would you join us in this bliss? Would you give your life to Jesus Christ right now if you haven't yet? And if you have, but you wouldn't exactly characterize your life as blissful right now, if that's you, I want to encourage you to go back to the place you were when you came to Jesus as poor in spirit and humble before him and he gave you life. And if you return back to that place, the poor being poor in spirit and humble before God, he will restore that happiness. He will. And I encourage you to do that. And that leads us to Jesus' second beatitude. We will mourn. And mourning comes with a blessing. Beatitude 2, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, mourning and grieving is not something that we long to do, right? But followers of Jesus will mourn deeply over the suffering of the world. And they will go a step further. They will mourn for the sin that causes the suffering. We read twice in the Gospels about Jesus weeping over the sins of Jerusalem that have lost them the opportunity to be saved from eternal destruction. So Jesus knows that in just a few years, the city will be leveled and destroyed, and he mourns for that suffering, but he also mourns for something deeper, the sin that's going to cause them to reject the Messiah and lose their eternal life. He mourns over this. He weeps, and we should too. And it is mourning our, over our sinfulness that leads to repentance, which leads to life, which leads to peace, which leads to freedom from all sin. And all this else in the abundant life that Jesus offers us. So how can we start to live? Beatitude 2, B2, teaches us by mourning over suffering and sin. 
That's how we start to live. Those who have a proper faith to mourn the sin that causes the suffering discover the hope that's found in Jesus. And we receive this great gladness of being comforted in that. And it doesn't worry and bother us anymore. We give it to Jesus and he takes it. And he comforts us. And we are starting to live now. We're starting to live now. And that leads to the next blessing in our lives. Meekness. Meekness. Beatitude 3 verse 5. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Once we truly mourn over our sin, we meekly let God control us. So we have to answer what is meekness then? Meekness is power under control. All right? It is positive strength. Meekness is not weakness. In fact, it's much the opposite. It is the strongest strength. It's power under control. Either our own control or the control we give to someone else. In this case, God. See, when we are meek and we give all the worries and problems of the world over to God, we have the power to bear injuries with no resentment. We feel no need to get revenge. We don't take offense at anything anymore. We don't need to. We don't need to be offended. We give it all to Jesus. We're meek. We're under his power. And that's attractive power, isn't it? To not be bothered by those things anymore. But how do we do it? B3 is by exuding the Spirit's fruit of meekness. Where does meekness come from? As I studied that, it led me to this journey into, into the fruit of the Spirit. And I use that word exuding because I wanted a word that says always. We live by the fruit of the Spirit. Now, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Many of you have learned the song. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is, you don't need to sing it, but what is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians teaches us it is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this is where meekness fits in, those last two, gentleness and self-control. We can be gentle and self-controlled in the face of anything that life throws at us. Just like our master Jesus was. Every time he was assaulted, persecuted, mocked. Gentle, self-control. That's meekness. You lose your job, that's going to shake you up. But it's not going to break you. You get lied about. Your spouse or your parents yell at you. The meek, like Jesus, who are controlled by God, Give it over to him and are not bothered by any of it. There's a power there under control. And now, again, we are really starting to live. And so we're asking, what's the next stage? What's next? I know I'm asking that. All right, so we come to our fourth answer. How can I start to live in the fourth beatitude? Verse 6. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied satisfied. Jesus is more than describing those who are righteous here. He's describing their passion in life. What they want more than anything else is for the right to be done in every situation, just like Jesus hungered and thirsted for. Let me ask you to think about this. What do you hunger and thirst for the most? What do you hunger and thirst for the most? Now be careful with this answer because it reveals your inner character. To hunger and thirst. True disciples of Jesus desire to be like him, wanting what's right in every situation. 
more than anything else. We hunger and thirst for it. And the promise, that kind of hunger will be satisfied by God. So are you continually dissatisfied or unsatisfied in life right now? If so, how can I live so fully satisfied? That's before, that's our answer there, is by developing my hunger for righteousness. Developing this hunger for righteousness. I heard a, a solid Christian pastor speaker say that he has traveled over 300 times to speak at various events, conferences, and always tries to travel with a family member or a Christian brother so that they can keep each other accountable and sharpen each other while they're gone. And anytime he's not working, this is what he said, anytime I'm not working, I'm on battle mode. I'm in prayer, I'm reading and memorizing scripture, I never really rest until I get home and can rest with my wife. It's instead of flipping the channels in the hotel room or worse things. All right, he's on battle mode. He has developed a hunger and thirst for righteousness in his life. And I take a lot of encouragement from that example, from my own life. Now, this isn't easy to hunger and thirst for this. And we fail, as all godly people have. But that's why there's repentance and restoration that God will always give. And you're right back on course to hunger and thirst for righteousness again. Maybe God needs to restore you today to that place. And he will. He will. Now, let me review these four points that Jesus has made so far on becoming alive. This is the essence of salvation here. How can I start to live? Because when you are poor in spirit and come humbly to God, that leads you to mourn over sin, which leads you to become meek like Jesus, which leads you to hunger and thirst for the things that he hungers and thirsts for. And for this to happen in your life demonstrates that you have been made spiritually alive in Christ. You were at a place where you have said, Father God, this is not because anything I have done this is because of what you have done. Save me through Jesus. Give me life. I give up trying to clean up my own life and do it on my own. And you start to live. Let me be clear about these beautiful words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon has nothing blissful or abundant to offer someone who is outside of salvation still, who is still spiritually dead, except the invitation to come to Jesus and live. So I can't go any further without appealing to you, if that is you. Start to live today by believing in him, my friends. Start today. And we are at the midpoint in Jesus' eight Beatitudes now, and it's like we're at the top of a mountain. And at the top of a mountain, you can look back behind you and see where you've come and you can look ahead and see where you're going. And where are we going here for the next four Beatitudes? We are going to a changed life. We're going to abundant life. And that's our next question here. Point B, how can I start to live abundantly? Oh, we ask for this. And what we're going to see in the next four Beatitudes is a total transformation. Your relationships are transformed the psychology of your mind and your heart and your entire being is transformed and your whole direction and mission and purpose for your life are transformed 
into what Jesus calls abundant life. Let's look at the next four Beatitudes now. We get to the fifth in verse seven, where Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is where all of our relationships are transformed to abundant. Now think about all of your relationships. Think about all of them. Mercy is being moved by empathy for somebody else's suffering, somebody else's discomfort or place in life, to feel someone else's pain and to be moved to extravagant desire, to alleviate that suffering, to reach out to them. When every human, when the mercy of every human starts to look like God's mercy, things change. People give costly gifts. People make sacrificial costs to others for their good. And relationship starts to change. Another big demonstration of mercy is forgiveness. You want to be like Jesus? Forgiving everyone for everything is a demonstration of God-given mercy. It does not feel natural to do that. And remember, you have to go through the first four Beatitudes before you can really do this easily. Complete forgiveness for everything, for everybody, is divine mercy, and it's hard. And when you sacrificially give it, though, you are met with blessing, with abundant life, to have nothing shadowing your relationships anymore. You've given it all over. You have total peace. That is an abundant type of life. Now, how do you get to this point that you can be so merciful, so sacrificial, and so forgiving, and receive such an abundant mercy yourself? Here's how. Be five is by confessing my sin and thanking God for forgiveness. Christians are way too prone to think that we deserve the mercy that we've received, that we become intolerant and judgmental of others. Stop that, brothers and sisters. Confess your sin and thank God for the forgiveness that you've received. You've received it totally, completely, and it was at great cost to Jesus to give it to you. Now, if we know the cost of what we've received and pass that on to everyone else, we receive great blessing from that. Great happiness, great joy, great fulfillment, satisfaction. And we enjoy that blessing. And then with our relationships transformed by following Jesus, he goes on to the next beatitude, In verse 8, number 6, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. King David in the Psalms wrote, create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God. The heart here, God is talking about, the Bible uses the term heart to represent our, our entire selves. Our will and our desires and our thoughts and our longings and our choices and With a pure heart, then the decisions that we make, the thoughts that we have, the intentions that we have are not stained by sin. So when they are, they lead us to all kinds of damaging behavior that has bad effects on our lives. With a pure heart, our thoughts and intentions and directions in life are not stained by sin. This is called holiness. And God wants you not just to be holy. God wants you to want holiness. 
want holiness. Enough trying to flirt with sin, with our liberty in Christ, to try to get to temptation as close as we can without messing our lives up. No, we want to want holiness. I want to be like Jesus. I want to do the right thing. More than anything else in the world. And with that, you will see God. This is a relational promise. When you want to be like God, holy, you have a beautiful and blissful, empowering, abundant, blessed relationship with God. With nothing in the way. How do we get that? How do we get that? V6 tells you by walking in the light and living by the word. See, the sin inside of us loves the darkness. So we choose to walk in the light. We choose to enjoy the light of Jesus, to be around people that will make us better, and to live by his word, which means we need to get into his word regularly and just pick it up whenever you have a chance to be in it. And when you're in the word, you notice how hard-hitting this is, how it challenges you and shapes you and gives you wisdom, and how it deeply satisfies your soul. These are the words of life. And when we live by the word of God, it results in abundant life. As it changes our hearts. 1 John 3, 3 says, All who thus hope in him purifies himself as Jesus is pure. When we seek him and choose to follow him, he makes us pure in heart. And that is abundant life. So with that transformation of our heart now, our inner self, our total being, now we start transforming the world. And that's where Jesus goes next. Verse 9, Beatitude 7. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And most of you know our youth pastor, Pastor Caleb, Caleb Heath. Caleb said a few weeks ago, Matthew chapter 5 is one of his favorite chapters and he meditates on it and he uses it often in his, in his ministry with the youth group. And just a few days ago, he said the other day that some Christians in the youth group were getting upset. They were fighting and they were claiming their right to be angry. And Caleb said, no guys, that's not who we are. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. That's who we are. We're called to bring peace to this situation and to this world. That's awesome. And it's that attitude of Christ that turns this world upside down. We see the bumper sticker, Visualize World Peace, and we talk about that. And doesn't it blow your mind how that's never going to happen apart from Christ? So how do we ever get the power to be a peacemaker and to bring peace in absolutely every situation? By the power of the gospel. B7 is by promoting the gospel of peace to the world. Jesus says in John 14 that the world does not naturally understand this peace. It can never have this peace on its own. So Jesus calls us to use all of our influence in every sphere of life to bring the gospel of peace to the world. What a great calling to transform the world in our private relationships, within our church family, it needs to be done in the public square, at the workplace, at home, and to the ends of the earth. We bring peace and it changes the world. And it's only the power of the gospel that can make all men, women, and children from every kind of group love each other. 
and be at peace with each other. That's what the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of peace brings to the world. He's called us to bring that to the world. Now, the willingness to preach the gospel of Jesus and what the Bible says to call all men to repentance of their sins and faith in Jesus Christ, you do that in your relationships and proclaim wherever you are, you, you leverage your influence to bring that to the world and guess what's going to happen? Sometimes you're going to get ridiculed, mocked, persecuted. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that when you obey him, you run the risk of being rejected or losing something, losing a job or a relationship, being persecuted, some countries being killed. So what? Look at Jesus' beatitude number eight. Verse 10. Blessed, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No Satan, no world, no peers at school, no college professors. No, we will not let you stop the blessing of all satisfying happiness and joy in the persecution. You can't stop that. And Jesus extends this final beatitude in verses 11 and 12. He elaborates a little bit more. Let's read those final two verses. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, happy are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. There it is. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when you're laughed at and mocked and despised and rejected, whatever the the, the face of the persecution looks like, Because you are faithful to Christ, rejoice and be glad. And our Christian brothers and sisters around the world who are facing intense persecution often give this testimony. I remember a Chinese pastor that said, don't pray for the end of persecution here. It's making us, it's making the church strong. We pray for persecution in America. All right, well, it comes, it happens. Rejoice and be glad in it because Jesus says, blessed are all children of God. We drink the same cup that our master drank. And he's going to bless and satisfy us through it. He will make our lives surprisingly happy and abundant because of it. He will give us his kingdom, he says. Now, how do we reach this place in our abundant life to be so impenetrably happy? B8, by championing genuine, genuine righteousness at any cost. Speak truth in grace about all sin. Speak it. Share it in grace. Listen, no one ever is going to persecute you if you're only calling out the politically correct sins of the day. All right? That's easy. No one's going to ever persecute you for speaking against injustices of the poor. No one's going to ever persecute you for speaking against littering. Now, speak against those things. Those are things we need to speak about. But you know why the world gets so bent out of shape and so passionate about a few of the popular sins? And you know what they are out there these days? That is so we can be distracted from all the other sins that are in their lives, keeping them from spiritual life, keeping them from the joy of Jesus, from eternal life. Christians, we're supposed to speak into all of them to bring life and truth in grace. And when we do, some people may persecute us. Others may believe it. 
and become alive. We're called to be faithful in all situations. Now, I know that's hard, and I fear that sometimes. But when you do it, and I've experienced this too, the joy of being persecuted to share the master's cup. And I encourage you to get to that place in life where your happiness is so abundant in Christ that you get there. You know, we hear about a a business getting fined $160,000 or whatever because of taking a position on something. And we say, oh man, that's so bad, too bad for them. No, I want to encourage you to rejoice with them. Now there's some things that we can address that are too bad, but rejoice with them because they are being blessed abundantly. And they tell you that. Now it's intentional that Jesus ended the opening of the sermon with this, with persecution. Because for the rest of the sermon, he is about to confront some serious error and speak some serious truth into the world. And those that hate it will persecute. But those who receive it will live abundantly and with Jesus turn the world upside down for its own good and for God's glory. And so we go on satisfied and filled with the joy of our master. There's two next steps that I have for you today to start putting this in action as we go on into this fall. The first one is I will start to live today. Again, the Beatitudes are practically, practically meaningless to the person who has not become alive yet. You're not trusted Jesus as your savior from sin. John says in, or Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again to enter the kingdom and to become spiritually alive today. But this can happen to you right now. Will you believe in Jesus? Repent from your own sin and self-sufficiency. He will give you life today. Now for the rest of us, or for, for everyone, I will start, number two, I will start living abundantly today by, and I know everybody wants this. Every soul wants abundant life and meaning and purpose and fulfillment and joy and happiness no matter what life throws at them. Here are some things going on right now that I encourage you to do. To get that in your life. Circle the Beatitudes, the B, one through eight, that you need to work on the most. And work on them this week, this fall. You might ask your family members, they'll be honest with you, what you need to work on. But you know, and you know how to do it, and you know that Jesus is there for you. Next, meditate on Matthew 5 in your home, in your personal life. Just meditate on Matthew 5 over and over. The whole Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7. You can do it all. One family said they're memorizing the whole chapter together this fall. It's pretty awesome. I'm encouraged by that. Next is participate in your small group every week. Uh, participate in it. God gave you Christian community for this very reason. You can't do this on your own. I didn't mention that. This is not something that you do alone. None of this. Uh, you can buy a, one of the study books and join a small group if, if you haven't yet over at the table. Come and talk to us. Uh, The next is the Digging Deeper Guides in the Bulletin. I want to tell you that's not just a piece of paper just to throw away. Uh, Pastor David and Nikki Ori, family pastor and um, children's director, uh, put these together uh, every week for the next six weeks. And I looked at this one. They did not consult me on it, but they did a great job. They consulted the Word of God. So, Uh, And we're going to use that in our home. Uh, I just want to make special attention to that. Use that. That's enough to get us started. Let's pray, bathe this all in prayer, and commit our lives to Christ right now together. Let's pray. Lord God, we have been immersed in your word that is timeless. It's what the Holy Spirit works through to divide 
to penetrate our hearts. And Lord, I pray for your spirit to continue its work. We know that the sermon isn't over until we take it home and apply it. We know that Jesus is with us. We know that the Holy Spirit's with us. And I do pray for your blessing on this church and this fall and all our homes as we go forward. And if we start to live abundantly, all of us together, the impact on the world we, we can make, we look forward to. So guide us, we pray in that. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>